Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. The following sermon was preached at the Holiness Rally at the Dayton Interchurch Holiness Convention in Dayton, Ohio in 2016. This sermon is by Paul Kaufman and is titled, Let Us Go On to Perfection. I trust you will enjoy this message. Thank you, Edwards. I couldn't have ordered up a better song for what I'm going to try to preach this morning. I love that message on holiness. This is the Holiness Rally. It's an honor to be here this morning. I told Brother Plank this is my third time to preach here. Three strikes and you're out. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, Chapter 12. John's Gospel, Chapter 12. Actually, I've got to tell you the truth. I've been looking forward to preaching this morning. Scared to death, but looking forward to it. I can't sort those feelings out, but I'll tell you why. Number one, God gave me this message last September. Now, happiness for a preacher is knowing what you're supposed to preach. Brother Plank called me in the summer. I struggled for a month or two. April 2016 seemed like a long way off. But one night in Hope Sound, about 3 o'clock in the morning, the Lord woke me up like Samuel and said, here's the message. I jumped out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, sat down at the kitchen table with something I couldn't wear on the platform today, <laughs> and wrote out the notes. Now, I'm a great researcher, and I'm a great borrower, and I'm not very original, but several thoughts I have today are original. I'll have to take the blame for them. I'm also happy to be here this morning because I've got a lot of people praying for me. That gives me courage, particularly my students. I love my students. They think I'm raised up of the Lord to persecute students, but really I'm not. I love students. I like them to learn. They know I want them to learn. I have, I have people who attend my classes, and then I have students. They'll sort through that. They know what I'm saying. And I've had some interesting experiences with students. I have a, a way of telling students, when I want them to get a point, I say, I'm from the IRS and I'm here to help you. Well, I was teaching for the seminary. I'm finishing my 27th year at Ashland. A few years ago, in a class in Cleveland, Ohio, several times in that series of lectures, I said, I'm from the IRS and here to help you. And at break time, one of my black lady students, a middle-ager, came up to me and she said, I'm a federal IRS agent. I'm probably not getting the same humor out of that as everybody else is. 
I've had unique students. I have a student who is a retired patent attorney, a multimillionaire, made his money in law, got saved late in life. I've told the story. He and I are friends. He gives me all my free legal advice. And when we go up to Hudson to go out with him and his wife, he takes us to restaurants where there are no prices on the menus. Most of you don't know what, most holiness preachers don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then I've had college presidents in my students. Brother Dan Stetler is sitting over here. He wanted to study Hebrew with me. And so that summer, after that first year of study, he and I were preaching together at Rock Lake in Michigan. I got up in the morning and I said, you know, it's really neat having the college president for a student. He controls my pay, but I control his grade. <laughs> but he's fast on his feet. He got up that night and he said it wasn't any problem. He said he gave me an A, so I paid him. <laughs> Thank you for coming this morning. John's Gospel, Chapter 12. I want to start off by saying that John spends half of his gospel in the Passion Week of our Lord. Starting with chapter 12, clear to the end of the book, all he focuses on are the activities that start Saturday night in Bethany and end with his ascension. John is mighty interested in what happens in the last week of our Lord. I've asked you to turn to chapter 12. It starts off with Jesus' feet being anointed by Mary in Bethany, probably on Saturday night, six days before the Passover. Then in chapter, or char, I'm sorry, in verse 12 then, we come to Sunday, which is Palm Sunday. Much people are at the feast. Verse 13, they take branches of palm trees and they go forth to meet him, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which my Hebrew students can tell you is really Hoshianu, which is save us now we pray, save us now we pray. They're looking for a revolution out of Jesus. Everybody expects him to go to Pilate's judgment hall or to the palace and throw out Pilate or go to Herod's palace and throw out Herod and take over. And instead he turns off to the temple and drives out the money changers. Jesus has other things in mind. And then we come to my lesson this morning in verse 20. Here's the lesson. Verse 20, we'll read several verses. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feasts, at the feast, and the same came therefore to Philip, which of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now I want you to notice Jesus' response to this. He answered and answered them, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him also will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me 
from this hour. It's as far as I'm going to read this morning. My text, you need not turn to it. You're all familiar with it. It's in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, which simply says, Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. The title of my message this morning, you can take your pick. I have two titles. I haven't decided on one yet. It's either the corn of wheat, afraid to die, or it's here come the Greeks. My text, let us go on to perfection. Bow your heads with me for prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege of being in this place today. Thank you for the help you've given thus far through the convention. Oh, how our hearts have been warmed and stirred. We want to leave this place better men and women and boys and girls for having been here. And we need your special help just now, and we shall give you praise, we ask in thy name. Amen. My outline is very simple today. Brother Sankey talked about alliteration. I rarely use it. I'm just not sophisticated enough. So my outline is pretty simple. I'm going to talk about a definition. I want to talk about that word perfection a little bit. Then I'm going to do some exposition of the scripture I just read you. And then I want to make application. Now, if you were in my church history class, I've taught 37 years, I think, church history, AWC, Ashland, Hope Sound. You might even come to GBS this fall in the, in the master's course. Do you know they took my picture the other night standing there between Dr. Brown and Mike Avery, standing under the Hope Sound sign? I mean, I'm sorry, under the GBS sign, and Hope Sound students walked by and looked at me kind of funny. But I'm a great ecumenalist. I'm, I'm like that neighborhood stray dog. He, the stray dog eats out of every dog's dish. You never know where he is. You're not sure where his loyalties are. Well, my loyalties are with the holiness people today. And anybody who wants to learn, I've said I'd preach for the Catholics if the Pope would let me. I want to talk to you about this word perfection. And in my classroom, I don't have a board behind me, but I would start off by drawing a circle on the board, and I would talk about three models of history. The ancient historians, people like Herodotus, Pliny, some of those ancient historians, they taught that history is cyclical. It goes in a cycle. Now, you and I have heard that. We say if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're doomed to repeat it. And I will agree there is a sense in which certain patterns seem to emerge in history. In other words, here's a group of people. They strike out on their own. Maybe they find a body of water, a spring of water, a river, a creek, a place along the ocean. They put their roots down. They develop a culture, a society, maybe a language, maybe a religion, certain social mores. They advance to a certain level, and then they either fall apart, rot from within, or they're overrun from without. And here comes another group. Find the same body of water, start all over again, the same thing. I remember in Iron Age archaeology in Israel, we had like Megiddo, has something like 21 different layers of civilization, just over and over again. So the ancients taught that history is cyclical. It goes in cycles. Well, in the year 410, Rome, that great impregnable city on seven hills, thought nobody could ever touch it. And in 410, Rome was sacked by the outsiders. The great his 
the great church theologian Augustine wrote a book, it's a classic, it's probably in most libraries, called The City of God. And in it, he explains how Rome fell, and in so doing, he lays out another model of history that I want to focus on today to help us define this word perfection. Augustine said there's a certain starting place in history. For him, it was creation, Genesis chapter 1. He said history follows along a line to a certain culmination out here, either the second advent or the end of the millennium, depending on your eschatology. So he said it's a linear view, not cyclical. And he uses the word, when it reaches the goal, he uses a Greek word. We don't give many Greek words when we're preaching, but today I'm going to. It's the word teleos. Teleos means to reach the goal. And by extension, it means to be perfect. And so Augustine's view of history has been known as the teleological view of history. That's that Greek word teleos. My text said, let us go on to teleos. Let us go on to perfection. Now, I looked at a whole slew of translations, and many of them translate that word, let us go on to maturity. I think they were all Calvinists. I don't like that word maturity. It doesn't fit at all. I like old Young's literal translation saying, wherefore, having left the word of the beginning of Christ unto the perfection, let us go. Let me say something from Adam Clark. He said, many make a violent outcry against the doctrine of perfection. In other words, against the heart being cleansed from all sin in this life and filled with love to God and man because they judge it impossible. It is too much to say of these that they know neither the scripture nor the power of God. Surely the scripture promises the thing and the power of God can carry us on to the possession of it. Thank you, Adam Clark. I brought several scriptures along today, and I want to show you how using the word maturity just doesn't work. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus says to the man, if thou wilt be perfect, he doesn't say if thou wilt be mature. James 1, 4 said, but let patience have her perfect work, not her mature work. Hebrews 7, 19 said, for the law made nothing perfect not mature. Hebrews 5.9 says, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. Obviously, perfection is the word that's preferred here, and that's the one I want to stick with this morning. Jesus said, be therefore perfect, as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Hebrews 2.11, I'll give you one more, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering, not mature. Let us go on not to maturity, let us go on to perfection. And that's where young people get it mixed up. They come to the altar, they see a 70-year-old saint who's been walking with God for 55 years, and they want to get up from the altar and act like that too. You don't seek maturity at the altar. You come there and seek perfection. Maturity comes in walking with God. And what's neat is when Jesus died on the cross, the last thing he said is, it is finished. It's that same word, teleos. He said it is perfect. It's a perfect plan of salvation that he completed and died for. So I'm going to stick with the word perfection today. We call Augustine's view the teleological view or the goal-oriented view. We all have goals. 
An old conference president said, he who aims at nothing generally hits it. I hope as Christians you have goals. When I was a pastor, I would tell people the Sunday night before the revival began, I said, let's stand up and let's tell each other what our goals are for this revival. Let's see what we want to get out of the revival. Maybe that's the educator part of me. I like goals and objectives and assessment. A lot of people get out of a service about what they plan to get out of it, not much. Others get out of a service what they put into it, not much. We need goals. For the unsanctified, the primary goal is to get rid of that carnal nature that the Edwards sang so beautifully about. That's the goal. Wesley called it Christian perfection. Now I want to go to my lesson for a little while. What I want to get across to you today is so beautifully illustrated in the life of Christ. When Jesus came into this world, he had a goal. I like the way Barclay said it in one of his comments. Back at, uh, back at Christmas time, we talk about the innkeeper and no room in the inn and so forth. Mary and Joseph didn't have reservations at Bethlehem, did they? But you know what Barclay said? He said when Jesus came into this world, the only place ever reserved for him was a cross on Mount Calvary. That was his, re that was his reservation. Another great preacher of yesterday said Jesus was the only child ever born who was born to die. That was his goal. Don't know what Satan knew about that goal, but it seemed like he tried everything he could to keep Jesus from reaching that goal. Now, Jesus had faced a lot of temptations before these Greeks got to him. When he was baptized of John, the Spirit, one gospel writer says, led him. The other one says the Spirit drove him to the wilderness. You know the story. He fasts for 40 days. He's hungry. And then here comes Satan. Three specific temptations, turning the stones to bread, casting himself off the pinnacle of the temple and falling down and worshiping. These were easily dispatched by our Lord. I want to say carefully this morning, these were mere child's play to what Jesus is going to face in his Passion Week. So Sunday comes. The Jews were all excited, as I've already said. It appears that deliverance is about to arrive in the form of this Galilean riding on the donkey. And I said Jesus was not interested in that kind of revolution. He's got another goal in mind. So sometime after that Palm Sunday ride through the Eastern Gate, somewhere in what someone has called the shadows with Jesus, a group of Greeks who have come up to Jerusalem for the Passover come with this request to Philip. Now these are Greeks, Greek-speaking people, very likely proselytes who have accepted Judaism are now there as one of the annual feasts. Jesus, who is about to be perfected, is somewhere either in the temple or somewhere in the shadows. And these Greeks come to Philip. Why Philip? Well, Philip has a Greek name. Most of the disciples have Hebrew names or Aramaic names. So it would be natural that a Greek-speaking person would go to find somebody with a Greek name. And then Andrew is the other one with a Greek name. Did you see what I read? It says, the same came to Philip. And they said, Sir, we would see Jesus, and Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. 
Now, how does Jesus respond to these Greeks? Well, he's going to talk about death and dying. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now I want to tell you about something that happened in my marriage. My wife is sitting back here rooting for me. My wife is a very unselfish person. She never spends money, much of it anyhow. She can go to town all day and come home with a three or four dollar item and, and she's just tickled pink. Men, eat your heart out. It doesn't take much to satisfy my wife. We go to Sam's Club. I mess around the computers and the electronics. She heads off to her interest, and we always meet at the books. One day, she says, I met her at the books. She said, honey, and she holds up this little narrow, turns out it's a devotional book. It has a real thick cover on it. It's written by an Englishman by the name of Selwyn Hughes. And each division is illustrated by one of Thomas Kincaid's paintings. You people know about Kincaid, the famous painter of light. I said, honey, you don't buy devotional books in Sam's Club. But honey, she said, I really want it. Honey, I said, besides, real men don't use devotionals anyhow. They're for whatever. <laughs> All right, honey, you want the book? We buy the book. Took the book home, I'd see it on the coffee table, kitchen table, nightstand. For about six or nine months, I kind of tormented her with this thing. How are you getting along with your book, dear? She said, it's pretty good, you ought to look at it. Out of curiosity, I picked it up after about a year. I started reading and I said, honey, this is dynamite. Where did we get this? Oh yes, Sam's Club. Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light, in his introduction says something, he says, I love to paint the light coming out of the window or off the hearth or the sunset, sunrise, whatever. But he said, before there is light or heat, something must die. Wood, charcoal, olive oil, whale order, whale oil, Something must be sacrificed to produce the life-giving heat and light. You must de destroy the log to, to enjoy the fire. And we, too, must destroy ourselves in giving ourselves to God that he can make something out of us. Through his own crucifixion and resurrection, Christ is the ultimate example of death leading to life. It's unnatural, it's an oxymoron. Jesus says, whosoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. And the philosophy of this world is that's crazy. You get out there and fight to get ahead. Jesus says, no, the way down is the way up. No death, no life. It occurs to me that a mother literally passes through the pangs of death to bring a child into the world. No death, no life. And here come the, Jew, the Greeks with their request. I like to think of these Greeks as coming from Athens, the seat of learning. 
Athens, Greece. Paul was there on Mars Hill. Remember the philosophers that met there? Remember that uh, altar to the unknown god? The Stoics were there, the Epicureans. Athens represents the Harvard and the Yale, the Princeton of the ancient world. But he also wanted to tie this along with something that happened when Jesus was born. Matthew tells about it in chapter 2. There came the Magi. These are the wise men of the East. I like to think of these Greeks who came to Jesus as the wise men of the West. The Magi says, we have seen his star in the East. So they come to Jerusalem looking for him. Both of these groups have questions. The wise men of the East come to, come to Herod's palace and says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? These wise men of the West say, sir, we would see Jesus. They both come seeking Jesus. You see how that works? They both see him in his humility. The wise men of the East see him perhaps in a cradle. The wise men of the West see him on the cross. We see our Lord at the beginning and at the end of his life. Now, whatever these fellows are after, it sets off a tremendous emotional conflict for Jesus. I read you in verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. One of the most momentous events in the life of our Lord is this emotional visitation by these Greeks. Now, why did they come? I think this represents a more advanced temptation for Jesus to try to divert him from the cross. We don't know for sure. I'm making some inferences here. But one wonders if these Greeks, knowing that his life was in danger, had not suggested that he go to Athens with them to be immune from the cruel fate awaiting him in Jerusalem. Thus, he might indeed save his life. But his purpose in coming was to lay it down not to go to Athens. Perhaps they want to offer him a philosopher's chair. Why, Jesus, you could bring your gospel message to Athens. We hear they're wanting to kill you here. Six attempts had already been made on Jesus' life. Don't stay here and face a cross. Come to Athens. We've got an academy for you. Your message will well be received. You might have a long and fruitful life. Bring your message to our shores. Come to Athens to the seat of academic and philosophical matters. We'll give you a philosopher's gown. You'll be respected and accepted. Don't stay in Jerusalem where only a grisly cross and death await you. Now this idea of the Greeks is not that far-fetched. In John chapter 7, Jesus told them, he said, you shall seek me and you won't be able to find me. And listen to what verse 35 says. The Jews said, where does this man intend to go? We won't find him. He's not intending on going to the dispersion among the Greeks, is he, to teach the Greeks? So chapter 7 already raises the idea that Jesus might go to the Greeks. So regardless of why they came, it, pre it precipitates a spiritual crisis in the life of our Lord. Now, he says, is my soul troubled. That Greek word means ex extreme agitation. It's the same Greek word in John 5. You remember where the, the angel came down and stirred the waters for the impotent man? He stirred the waters. That's the same thing here. 
This question, this delegation of Greeks has stirred the waters in Jesus' heart. And he cries out, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. Let me point out something else I discovered. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spend verses after verses in Gethsemane's garden. John never mentions it. Go to John chapter 18, and you'll find out it says, when he had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Kedron, where there was a garden into which he entered it with his disciples. And the next verse says, and Judas, which also betray him, knew the place. And verse 3 says, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers, came to get him. John, writing probably at the age of 80, 85, been to the Isle of Patmos, now writing from Ephesus in his mind, this issue with these Greeks is more important than what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. He never mentions Gethsemane. He focuses on this, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I into the world. Notice he aligns himself with self-giving, not with self-saving. Would he ask to be excused from paying the supreme price? No, he said, it was for this very reason that I came into this hour. How did he respond? Paul tells us in Philippians, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and came obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. One other thing about the East and the West wise men, the wise men of the East were given a star. The wise men of the West we're given a corn of wheat. Jesus talks about the corn of wheat dying. And I want to tell you what, that same issue faces every unsanctified person here today. And how you respond to that question will determine your spiritual destiny. And now I've come to the application of the message. When you first get saved, you remember when you first prayed through, there were a lot of basic issues you had to settle. What am I going to do about the Lord's Day? What am I going to do about tithe? What am I going to do about restitutions? Don't hear a whole lot on restitutions nowadays. I remember that some of you heard me tell the story when I was in Uncle Sam's Air Force. I was an x-ray technician. Took my bride a thousand miles from Ohio to McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas. The Lord said, therefore shall a man leave his mother and his father. And we left. And we never had in-law trouble once. <laughs> so I'm in the new radiology department as an x-ray technician. I don't know what in the world I was thinking that day. In that supply cabinet, there was probably two dozen cans of some kind of, I'll call it fly spray. I don't know, it was army drab green. You know how the army green color is and a mountain of, looks like masking tape. Actually, it was autoclave tape that you use when you sterilize things. The stripes turn black when it's sterile. And I stood there and I thought, now, I, I belong to Uncle Sam. This stuff belongs to Uncle Sam, so somehow this stuff can belong to me and it would be okay. Nutty thinking. And I took a can of fly spray and a half a dozen rolls of masking tape home. I've asked my wife since. We don't know whatever happened to it. We don't remember using any of it. And several years went by, and then I got saved. By the way, I want to give you a little aside. I found out a couple weeks ago when I got saved. 
I listen to students. I listen to preachers. Brother Loper the other night, remember he was telling you exactly where he was and what time it was, and, and Wesley at a quarter of nine. In all these years, I've been tormenting myself because I can't remember. It's like somebody says, when did you get saved, Paul? And I say, which time? But I got a letter from Brother Van Warmer, and I found it about three weeks ago, and it's dated March of 1970, and he's writing to thank me for something that I and my brothers did for the conference. And he said, Paul, he said, I'm glad you settled it to go with God in the January Youth Revival in 1970. So now I can tell you when I got saved. January of 1970. That's a tremendous relief for me. And I was out in the living room with my wife and our two daughters praying one morning in my devotions, and a can of fly spray and a few rolls of masking tape, like a pendulum, started swinging in front of me. No, I thought, surely not. I prayed for some other people, and I tried to get around. You know how it goes. Tried it a few mornings. It was clear I wasn't going anywhere to I deal with this. And I'm thinking, that's federal property, appropriation of federal property. I start thinking of Fort Leavenworth, Sing Sing, Alcatraz, the FBI, leg irons, handcuffs. And I may have tried a few more prayers and got nowhere. So I sat down with my checkbook. I estimated the cost, put it in a letter, sent it off to the colonel in charge of that hospital in McConnell and waited for the FBI to come and get me. By the way, my prayers got through after that. Prairie went better after that. Truth be told, I forgot about it. One day I got this big, long-looking envelope from Uncle Sam. It didn't have a, you don't need stamps if you're Uncle Sam. It was just Frank, you know. And I opened it up to see what my fate was, and here's a letter written from some first lieutenant supply clerk somewhere. My check was stapled to the top. And essentially what he said in that letter, he said, your letter has been in every office on this Air Force base and nobody will touch it with a 10-foot pole. And here's your check back. And he said, and good luck in your civilian pursuits. And in that same file with Brother Van Warmer's letter, I found that thing about three weeks ago. It's a little faded. I just felt like waving at it the devil. I just felt good about it. It just gave me a shot of confidence. But you know, restitutions, the Lord's Day, tithing, that's kid stuff to what you're going to face once you start facing your carnal heart. That's the showdown. Now our people, I'm convinced we don't educate them well enough on what this business is all about. This morning I'm from the IRS and I'm going to help you. I want to say a few things about it. I said, let me tell you how confused, evangelists are the worst theologians. Okay, now I just had three meetings in the last five weeks, so I guess I'm somewhat of an evangelist. I remember sitting one Sunday night in a packed Stoneboro tabernacle. His name shall remain anonymous. He's in heaven today. You've all heard him. Bless God, he said, if you're saved, you're my half-brother. And if you're sanctified holy, you're my full brother. And I said, what in the world kind of nutty theology is that? And the people loved it. People got blessed. Listen, if you're my brother, if you're saved, you're my brother. 
and God's our Father, and we're tied in this thing together. And I've pastored long enough for people to come up to me and they'll say, well, now I'm not sanctified yet, so I still do this and this. Wow, you can tell they're walking in all the light, can't you? <laughs> and we preach it with such lack of clarity. There's this confusion over holiness or hell. Listen, Hebrews 12:14 does not say, follow peace with all men and two works of grace without which no man shall see the Lord. It doesn't say that. Now, I've heard it preached that way many, many times, but it doesn't say that if you're saved, holiness has begun in your heart, and you're qualified for heaven if you keep walking in all the light. I like to tell people, I'm not going to heaven because I've been entirely sanctified. I'm going to heaven because I've been justified. That wiped my record clean in heaven, and I've walked in all the light ever since. That thief on the cross, he never heard of the second work of grace. But it seems like he made it to heaven. S.I.M. called it legal sanctification or positional. I'm a little nervous about that. That sounds a little Calvinistic. Brother Paul Gray had the fall revival last year at Hope Sound. He called it provisional holiness. It's provided by Christ until you get full deliverance, provisional. Whatever you want to call it, friend, holiness has begun the moment you pray through. And there's a lot of opposition to preaching on death route. I'm not going to stop preaching on death route holiness. Jesus starts talking about this corn of wheat. That sounds like death route to me. Except it fall in and die. That's the death route. Once you have light on holiness, you'll either enter in or you'll die spiritually. You cannot stay in victory and refuse to walk in the light of holiness. Unsanctified friend of mine, your real temptation, your real battle will be when the Holy Spirit gets you to the edge of the furrow and invites you to fall in and die. Now, I just told you when I was saved. Our second daughter was born in December of that year, and I think I was holding her on my lap the next spring, middle of a morning sermon, and God began to open a window in my heart and showed me the depths of my depravity. And I'd been professing it. God's got ways of getting you into the corner, friend. He'll show you the depths. And here's what I tell people. You say, well, can you get saved one day and sanctified the next? I doubt it, and I'll tell you why. You need to learn your disease and then seek the cure. When you get up from that altar of prayer, you think you've arrived. You're walking around praising God. You're ready for heaven, and you are. You don't know anything about what's still lurking beneath. But God will show your disease. And that morning, he showed me the disease. I couldn't seek the cure fast enough. And that's how it'll be for you, too, friend. Those who have not fallen into the ground and died, those who have failed or refused to die, are like that corn of wheat, afraid to die. And they go on in a shallow life, fruitless and empty. When we refuse to pay the price of dying, we'll pay the price of deadness itself. Someone described a room with mirrors on all four walls. And I thought, if you really want to go on with your unsanctified heart, 
Just let God shut you into your little self-made room of mirrors so you can see yourself in every direction and see if you like what you have to live with. Hell is the reward of having your own way. You either die and live, friend, or you refuse to die and ultimately lose your soul. Let me give an example of one that comes to my mind, and I must be careful here. I'm going to hedge this out every way I can. I want you to know who I'm talking about. It starts off when I was pastoring my second church. My two daughters were clearly going to go to Bible college for one year. I don't care what you're going to end up doing in life, but you're going to Bible college for one year. I said, every young person is going to go to Bible college for one year. You're catching it. One more time. Every, Bible, every student ought to go to Bible college for one year. Thank you. And so they did. They both went to AWC for a year, and then they started commuting over to Malone College in Canton, now Malone University. They were brown bagging it, living at home. One day they ran home that fall and they said, oh, Dad, there's a new professor. He's an art teacher. He just got his master's degree from Miami University of Ohio. He's a neat guy. He's saved. They're looking for a church and his wife is homesick. They said, why don't you go up and visit her and pray with her? Maybe we can get her. And I did and we did and we got him. And Anna and Tim Young started coming to our church and they loved us and we loved them and they were growing by leaps and bounds. I remember the day that Anne conceived and, and bore a little girl named Mariah. She came from a Catholic background. Aunt Peg, the nun, was there that morning. Did you ever, did you ever do a baby dedication with a full-blown nun sitting on the front row? She seemed to enjoy it. And Anne and Tim were doing well. They loved our church. But we'd have them over to the church with other people from time to time. Sometimes they'd tell us, they said, but, but what's with this one woman? What's this one a retired preacher's wife. She's so negative. Oh, and I, was, I knew who she was talking about. Oh, this poor soul. I'd stand in the back of the church and I'd look out the window and I'd see the car come in on Sunday morning. I thought, oh no, I have to greet her. What am I going to say? Well, how are you, sister? Huh? Okay. And then she would do what I call, she played the ain't it awful game. Everything was awful. Nothing was ever good. Complain, complain, complain. So Anna has the baby, now she's back in the nursery, and this dear preacher's wife decides to go back and help her out. And just like vitrolic acid, just drips acid on everything that happens. I've heard of a church somewhere where there was a sign in the back of the auditorium. It said, you entered without leaving. I'm sorry, you entered without knocking. Please leave the same way. And they would tell us about this woman. She had a reputation. Now, the sad thing is I could stand her up and she looked like a saint. Totally unsanctified. William Blair pastored her. Doc, he said, if you can pastor her, you can pastor anybody. How'd you like to have a reputation like that? Well, you just get on the edge of the furrow and refuse to drop in and you can find, what it, find out what it's like to live that way. Listen, you can... Jesus bought you more than that on the cross, friend. You can live better than that. You'll drift into prayerlessness. And you know, there came a day when Tim and Ann came to my wife and me and said, we just can't take it anymore. We love you, we love the church, we love this people, but we're tired of this woman and we're leaving and we'll see you. And they found another church. 
I trust the poor soul made it through. Your goal as an unsanctified person is to deal with what Jesus was talking about. Accept a corn of wheat, fall on the ground, and die. Die to self. Die to your future plans. Oh, I can remember as a kid, Dad would, Dad would be on the tractor pulling a two-bottom plow, and I'd be in my bare feet. And it was kind of neat to walk in that warm soil late in the evening. The evening dew was falling, beginning to fall already. And that just soil felt good, just walking along behind that plow. And in my mind's eye, I can just see that, that piece of wheat or that piece of corn falling down into the furrow. Have you ever gone out to the garden after you plant that corn of wheat? Check it out in a few days. It starts to shrivel up. Then it starts to decompose and rot. But then after a while, you'll see a little bit of green coming up out of it. There's life there. It's putting down roots. That's what Jesus is trying to talk about. Yes, Jesus might have been tempted for a moment by these Greeks, but he realized he had a destiny. He had an appointment with the cross. His response to the Greeks really was, Father, glorify thy name. At that moment, God gave God a blank check and signed it with his own blood. And you too, friend, when you reach that supreme moment when you hand God a blank check signed in your blood, invite him to call on you for all that you've got to give him and all that you are, and only then will you really begin to live. I was reading about a lady I never heard of her before. I like her name. Her name was Jenny Fowler Willing. How about that? Willing. She was willing. She died in 1916. Give you a little context for her. She was a leader in the WCTU. She founded the New York Training Institute in 1895, a school for preparing young men and women in urban ministries. Here's what she said in her testimony. She said, I shall never forget the hour when I made that surrender. She said, one afternoon when the Holy Spirit sent his light into the depths of my soul, now listen to this metaphor. She said, I discovered hidden away like the wedge of gold in Aiken's tent a determination to do my own thing in life. Said that old thing was hidden away like a wedge of gold in Aiken's tent. <laughs> but she confessed it. She said, I was unable to say, I give it all up. Henceforth for me and only thy will and thy work. And she went on to be one of God's saints there in New York. Four or five times a year, I get to preach in the Chinese church down in uh, Lake Worth outside West Palm Beach. I love this story I found. And I found this story in my wife's Sam's Club book. It's about a Chinese lady named Mrs. Nobby Joe. Listen to this. She loves the Lord. She's seeking the Lord, apparently struggling with what I'm talking about. She said she went out into the hills to pray. Soon the Lord began to show her that his plans for her life led in a different direction. Petulantly, she cried, Lord, why do you always have to have your way? What about my way for a change? And gently the Lord whispered into her heart, My child, it's not that your way is wrong, but my way is best. I like that. He didn't say my way is better. He said my way is best. Now, she surrendered her will to his and came away with these words ringing in her ears. Listen to what God told her. You belong to the discouraged and broken people who commit suicide at the bend of the railway track. That was God's message for her. 
Confused by the message, she made inquiry and discovered that outside the town where she lived, there was a notorious spot at the bend of the railroad track where people intent on committing suicide would throw themselves over the cliff into the deep ravine below. She arranged to have a sign put up, and the sign said, Don't. See Mrs. Nobby Joe first. God loves you. She added her address, and the very first day the sign was put up, several people knocked on her door had come in response to the sign. She was promoted to glory at the age of 92, having saved over 5,000 people from suicide. God had a better plan when she was willing to die to her will. Uncle Buddy Robinson said, thank God the new birth cleans a man up, sanctification cleans him out. And I want to tell you, this business of heart purity is not only a privilege, a blood-bought privilege, it's a duty. And you preachers and pastors need to realize it's just not something optional that you might decide you want to do or don't do. This is life or death, friend, once you come to the knowledge of it. Too many today treat it like an option, and they kick the can down the road in their spiritual life and pay a price of prayerlessness, shallowness. It's the ultimate goal. It's the teleos. I remember my text now. Let us go on to perfection. Let's reach the goal. Holiness is the only reason for the existence of IHC, and it'll be the only reason for you to exist as one as God's child. I want to close with a story that takes place in 1968. That was the year of the, winter, of the Summer Olympics that took place in Mexico City. I was finishing up my four years in the Air Force. The local newspaper was focused on a young man named Jim Ryan. Jim Ryan was going to be competing in the Summer Olympics in the mile race. I remember the newspaper would send re reporters and photographers out, and they would take pictures of Jim Ryan running across the prairies of Kansas. He's in training. He's getting ready for the one-mile race. And he went to Mexico City, that mile-high city, and he competed and he won the gold. In fact, he set a world record. Jim Ryan was the first guy to beat the four-minute mile. But there's another runner at that race I want to tell you about today. His name was John Aquari, A-K-H-W-A-R-I, Aquari. He was an African runner who represented the country of Tanzania. He was going to be racing not in a sprint, not in a one-mile race, but in one of those marathons. They called it the 42-kilometer. That's about 26 miles. Can you imagine setting off on a race that lasts 26 miles? That's halfway to Springfield. That afternoon in the big stadium in Mexico City, the race started with 72 runners. These guys got to run a careful race. They got to conserve their energy, and yet they're competing. The huge stadium was packed out. This course is going to lead out of the stadium, through the suburbs of Mexico City, out into the countryside, and then it's going to come back and end up in the stadium, uphill and down. It's an endurance race, not a sprint. Somewhere around the halfway mark, 
Some of these runners got jockeying for an inside position. They got tripping over each other. Quite a number of them went down, including a quarry. He was hit and stumbling to the ground. He actually dislocated his knee and his shoulder was beat up against the pavement. At that point, 15 runners dropped out. Of the 72, only 57 would even finish the race. Now hours went by. Finally, here comes the man who gets the gold at two hours, 20 minutes and 26 seconds. He comes through the gate into the stadium. The TV crews are there and he gets a hero's welcome. A few minutes later, here comes the man that gets the silver. Then behind him, the man that gets the gold. Things thinned out then. The crowd started to dissolve away. The shadows of the sun are starting to lengthen. Most of the runners have come in by now, long out of the competition. And just as twilight is approaching, the word goes out, wait, wait, there's one more runner. One hour and five minutes later, they send the TV crew back down to the finish line. The medals have all been given, the gold, the silver, the bronze. And a cheer goes up from the handful of people that are still left. A quarry finishes the race at three hours and 25 minutes. Now it's time to interview this fella. One of the sportscasters stepped up with the microphone. Mr. Quarry, he said, what possessed you to stay in this race, knowing you were way out of the competition? I like the answer of John Aquari. With a flash in his eye, he looked at that interviewer and he said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles across the ocean to start this race. They sent me 5,000 miles across the ocean to finish this race. Let us go on to perfection. Let us finish the race. When Jesus said it is finished, He's modeling what he wants you and me to say. And I'm here to tell you, you can reach that point in your life when you too say, by God's grace, it's finished. I'm done with the old life. Let us go on to perfection. And with that, I'm finished. God bless you. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I'm